We are not here today to discuss the values of fasting. When I was researching this topic, I had forgotten how much fasting had become a more popular aspect in our culture. For clarity's sake, we will not be discussing intermittent fasting, and we will not be discussing spiritual fasting, and we will not be discussing any type of fasting that is actually healthful for the body. But we are going to discuss fasting as a means to an end. How one woman, Linda Hazard, used fasting to manipulate and murder people who came to her seeking guidance and assistance. And y'all know how I feel about those kind of people. So buckle up. This is also where I'm going to throw out a content warning. We're going to be discussing bodily fluids and a slow, torturous death. And also a trigger warning for anyone who is triggered by eating disorders. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because... We all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Her first victim could be traced back to 1902. Linda Burfield had abandoned her husband and two children in 1898 to pursue a career in medicine. She went after a degree in osteopathic nursing, but her true love was that she was an advocate for fasting. She'd write, quote, Any symptom of disease in the body is evidence of poison circulating in the blood and deposited in the tissues. End quote. And the cure? A good fast. Here's a thought I can actually agree with. She writes, quote, Hunger is an involuntary function of the system. As much so as is the beating of the heart. It is not created by the individual, nor does it make its appearance at stated hours by exercise of the will. But appetite, its counterfeit, is easily called into being and may be apparent at set times. End quote. After studying under real physician Edward H. Dewey, he wrote the original books on fasting, um, literally. His books, The True Science of Living, The True Science of Health, was published in 1895, and then A New Era for Women, Health Without Drugs, a year later. Plus, the No Breakfast Plan and Fasting Cure became staples in the modern world even though other medical professionals were not a fan. In 1914, physician William Tibbles wrote that moderate fasts are beneficial but should be carried out under proper medical supervision. He noted that Dewey took the principles of fasting to a quote-unquote irrational extreme. So when she, Linda, says that she studied under Dewey, I believe that she merely meant that she read his books. She might have even read them more than once if we are feeling like giving her the benefit of the doubt. She took the information, tweaked it a bit as she went along, 
and soon enough she had a vision for her future in the medical community. Linda Burfield would later write in her first book that her definition of fasting is, quote, the voluntary denial of food to a system which is diseased and which, because of the disease, does not require nourishment until rested and cleansed and eager again to take up the labor of digestion. Then, and not until then, is food supplied. Then, and not until then, does starvation begin. End quote. After sidestepping prosecution for the death of the patient because she technically couldn't be held responsible because she technically wasn't a doctor, she also divorced her husband, Erwin Perry. Not too long after, she met and married Sam Hazard. He was all set for a promising military career, having attended West Point. He came from a well-established family that had favor in all the right places that took him to first lieutenant. But Sam chose to ruin it instead with heavy drinking, gambling, theft, and, quote, misappropriating army funds, end quote, and finally dropped from the, quote, roles of the army for desertion, end quote. Side note, the army finally stopped looking for him, but eventually his name popped back up, or rather a false name, because he already had a wife in New York He had decided to marry a second wife. I mean, he couldn't very well divorce the first wife. The army would find him. Therefore, he had no choice but to change his name in order to marry the real love of his life, Viva Fitzpatrick. By this time, there was also Linda. She was his soulmate. The Minneapolis Star Tribune would print in March of 1904, The fact of the matter is that Dr. Linda Burfield, whom the couple now look upon as their evil spirit, has been relegated to the past, and Hazard has given her quite a discharge so far as he is concerned. Viva Fitzpatrick, the principal of the second marriage, visited Hazard at the county jail yesterday, and a complete reconciliation was effected. The young couple, in order to completely straighten out the triangle of marriages and divorces, have agreed to be married again, and after that ceremony there can be no question as to their relations to each other. The young woman avers that she will wait for him until he is liberated. He went through the trial for bigamy and was sentenced to two years in a penitentiary. A newsflash. He did not return to Miss Viva, but instead sought out Miss Linda. And here's a bit more gossip. I could not find a divorce decree for Sam's second marriage. If there was a remarriage, I could not find a second divorce from Viva. And I could also not find a documentation that Sam and Linda were ever legally married. So... Whatever happened inside that time frame, Linda waited, and once Sam was released, the couple decided to make a fresh start by moving to Olala, Washington in 1906. Linda opened offices in Seattle, Washington, while they lived 40 miles away on 40 acres of land. She called her 40-acre heaven Wilderness Heights and had big dreams for its future. 
There's a story that says she might have gotten Wilderness Heights property as a result of one of her patients voluntarily signing it over to her, which, you'll discover, happens a lot. Her patients just love her so much they want to give her their most valuable possessions. Odd. In 1908, she published the book Fasting for the Cure of Disease by Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard. She was allowed to give herself the title of doctor even though she had not been to medical school or even finished her training as an osteopathic nurse. Apparently, there was a loophole in Washington just before they were beginning to change the laws that extended the title of doctor to a select few that used alternative medicine. Apparently, Linda Hazard fell into such a category. The Fasting for the Cure of Disease was her first of many books on the subject of fasting, and it really put her on the map. That and the little pamphlets that she'd advertise in newspapers. People would send in coupons asking for more information, and she would send them these little pamphlets explaining to them about her cures and successes and the resort where you could be able to heal and rest while she purged the disease of any kind from the body. Quote, Hunger and disease cannot exist simultaneously in the human frame, and natural methods of cure takes this fact into consideration. When hunger is absent, food is not required, and all animate creation, save man, obeys the primal law of abstinence when the physical scale no longer balances. Recognizing that disease arises from a single source, the method of the fast recognizes, as well a unity of cure, rest for organs overworked and abused and prompt removal by natural mechanical aids of filth productive of substances noxious to health, end quote. She had her offices in Seattle, and for early treatments, she would put up her patients in hotels and tend to them there. But eventually, she expanded her business to their property. Small cottages were added by the extended stay of her wealthier, um, I mean, more sickly patients, those in need of more secluded, um, rest. She claims that the body reveals the disease in ways sometimes as simple as a rash on the skin. Quote, there are no diseases, but only one disease, and for this there is but one remedy. To wait until disease develops locally is disastrous, and diagnosis is unnecessary, for natural treatment in any and all illness is identical in essence and it varies only in minor details. End quote. In this line of thinking and sales tactics, everyone had the disease and it needed curing. Quote, One experienced in the treatment of mental disease, she says making herself the expert, and acknowledging the untrained may be unable to sense it, quote, becomes an expert in distinguishing the marked odor attached to most lunatics. Even in the milder nervous derangements such as hysteria, the odor of the body becomes distinctly changed. End quote. See, anyone and everyone was in need of the fast, as she called it, whether your symptoms were physical or mental. 
She would tell her potential clients that she could smell when the chemicals of the body were off, and only those with a trained sense of smell could recognize disease in the body and the mind. On February 28, 1908, one of her patients, Daisy Hagland, passed away after 50 days of living off merely broth and some pieces of fruit. Daisy Hagland had gone to seek Linda's fasting treatment because she was having unbearable stomach pains. If I'm not mistaken, at the time, Daisy was Linda's only patient, which meant she was able to spend a lot of her time and energy with her and her husband. Johann would be very grateful for. He would sing her praises and be her loudest advocate, even in her darkest hours, even as his wife was withering away. Johann would also bring their son Ivar in for treatment. He lived, by the way. I know that's the first thing I wanted to know too. Daisy's friends, however, pleaded with her to eat something, but she refused, trusting Linda explicitly. The Seattle Daily Times would write that Daisy quote appeared to be a living skeleton. End quote. Linda's written statements would be her defense. She would write in her book quote. Death from starvation cannot take place in a fast when the organic disease is absent. End quote. She would admit to there being a few types of disease, but they all would require the same cure. She would write, quote, "Functional disease is that in which the organs themselves are in condition to work naturally, but have become unable to function because of poisonous congestion." The result of food taken into the body be the amount which the system needs for sustenance. Such surplus ferments and putrefies in the intestinal canal and elsewhere, producing toxins that are absorbed into the blood, thus impairing its quality and functionally hampering the vital processes. And then, quote, Inherent organic disease is a cause in itself of imperfective digestion. The organs are partially or entirely crippled at birth. While this form of disease is beyond the hope of cure, its harmful results on the body may be reduced to a minimum by means of the fast and a combination of this method of treatment with scientific dieting will lengthen the life of the unfortunate victim. End quote. And then, quote, functionally caused organic disease are consequences of digestion impaired by incorrect methods in feeding, by improper selection of food, and by excess supply. End quote. On the day that Daisy's death was discovered, the press took hold of it and splashed it across the headlines. Quote, Doctor Hazard's patient dies. End quote. However, when no arrest warrant appeared, the Seattle Times printed the local coroner's story. Quote, He could see no legal grounds for the prosecution of Doctor Hazard, although he was convinced that the patient would have lived had she been given nourishment when she needed it. End quote. It goes on to discuss how Daisy Hagland was an adult and could have chosen to halt the fast at any time, and if her husband wasn't upset, what could they do? But then, another day later, the Seattle Daily Times was forced to print another story with an outcome that no one expected. 
After a thorough autopsy was done, it was discovered that Daisy was suffering from an advanced case of stomach cancer. It explained why Daisy had stomach pains, which caused her to seek out the therapy, and it also gave credence to Linda's theory of inherent organic disease. She took this as a win and was given another free pass. Side note, here is where I mention that even though it seems to explain what's happening inside of Daisy's poor cancer-ridden body, she did fail to cure it as promised. But nobody's talking about that. With her get-out-of-jail-free card, the bodies started to pile up. But there's no way to know for sure just how many died at the advice of the pseudo-doctor Linda Hazard. But her records found years later and random gravestones on the property gave a good idea that it wasn't a small amount. For example, in addition to Daisy Hagland, we know that Mrs. Elgin Cox and Ida Wilcox also died in 1908. The notes for Mrs. Elgin Cox state that she fasted for 47 days, taking in only raw tomatoes for nourishment. Things ramped up the following year, and while I can find some notes on a few of the victims, actually none of the satisfied customers, I don't really know who was under her full care or who was kept at the hotels or even who took her advice and self-medicated at their own homes. In 1909 was when Wilderness Heights started taking on the nickname Starvation Heights by the locals. Apparently, the compound, uh, well, I mean, the resort, was surrounded by lush greenery and tall pines that is Washington. But people who wandered into those woods would discover gaunt, stick-skeleton people begging for food and assistance, trying to escape their luxury accommodations. One such wanderer discovered the remains of a man, a very thin man, but one who didn't die of starvation. Despite there being barely enough skin to cover his bones, the man had clearly died from a gunshot wound to the head. This man was identified as Eugene Stanley Wakelin. When asked about it, Hazard claims the man committed suicide. Now why didn't they ask her why she hadn't reported the death? He was only 26 years old and was the son of a British lord. By the time they got to the bottom of the story, it was discovered that the young man had signed over his power of attorney to Ms. Hazard and she suddenly had control over his estate. When Ms. Hazard wired his attorney demanding more money for his care, they informed him that despite his title and placement as an aristocrat, he was broke. So the question remains... Was he shot because they thought they could get an inheritance? Was he shot because they found out he was broke? Or did he really commit suicide because of all the duress and pain and suffering he was undergoing? We will never know. Mrs. Viola Heaton began her fast March 24, 1909 and died May 11, 1909. Blanche Tyndall's records say that she fasted for only 28 days and died on June 18, 1909. The health director of Seattle pretty much had his hands tied. She was licensed and, as far as he knew, her patients were willing participants. Apparently, 
She had a very dominant behavior, and it was later that it came out that, that some of her parents were actually afraid of her. She was said to be very aggressive and also strong for her small frame. They were afraid to disobey her instructions. She was a feisty thing and known in the area as quite the orator, challenging anyone to have opposing views on her methods. But it would do the health inspector no good to get caught up in debates with her, so he was forced to watch from afar. The autopsies that came through the health department stated that causes of death were starvation. Eventually, Ms. Hazard began conducting her own autopsies and documented that the causes of death were anything and everything but starvation. She would write, quote, The post-mortem examinations cited reveal the fact that it is impossible for one to die in the fast unless the vital organs are in such condition prior to abstinence that death is inevitable whether food is taken or not. End quote. Leave it to America to Americanize the idea of supporting the arts and creatives. In America's history, patronage was found in the arts, but is most commonly remembered in the forums of politics. It was termed the spoils system. And this is where the old and the new, the arts and the political sciences, cross. In thanks to patronage in politics, those running for office would promise favors to those who would help finance their campaigns. And those favors were apparently only expected if the person won the campaign. Which is why, when you donate to many places these days, there is a give and take. When you give your monetary support, the creative, or politician, gives back. Bag of Bones Podcast offers five levels with varying amounts of spoils, such as extra content, free merch, discounted merch, and other ways to make you feel inclusive and appreciated for every monetary gift bestowed on this creative endeavor. I am so thankful for every single patron who has signed on to propel the Bag of Bones podcast into the future that I am happy to give back. Some say we give too much, but in truth, it could never be enough in my mind to match my gratitude. So if you're ready to back this historical podcast, please head over to patreon.com and choose your level of support. And in addition to your spoils, I promise I will shake all the hands and kiss all the babies, and who knows? even bring about world peace. Quote, February 1st. Saw Dr. Hazard and began treatment this date. No breakfast. Mashed soup dinner. Mashed soup supper. February 5th through 7th. One orange breakfast. Mashed soup dinner. Mashed soup supper. These entries are from the diary of Earl Edward Erdman. He would document the basics of his treatment, but omitted the less genteel details, such as the enemas and massages. On February 16th, he'd write that he had slept better the night before, but his head felt, quote, quite dizzy and his eyes were yellow streaked and red, end quote. On February 20th, he wrote, quote, Dizzy all day, ate strained juice from two small oranges. 
February 21st, quote, backache today just below the ribs. February 22nd, quote, ate juice of two small oranges at 10 a.m., backache today on right side below the ribs. Uh, sir, that would be your kidneys failing. He continued on until, finally, his co-workers took him to the hospital on March 28th. The doctors decided that he needed a blood transfusion in order to save his life. But sadly, just prior to his friend getting set up to offer his blood, Mr. Erdman died on the same day as his rescue. On the 29th, the Seattle Daily Times shouted, quote, Man starved to death by his doctor. But there were no arrests. The man voluntarily starved himself, the authorities would repeat. Dr. Linda Hazard was not at fault. I mean, she couldn't be. She believed the body was choosing what it wanted to happen. Quote, There are cases in which the poisonous products of digestive putrefaction are present in such quantity as to tax the eliminative organs beyond their capacity. In fact, it is virtually certain that organic defects exist, and caution and knowledge are then needed in carrying the fast to its conclusion. She also believes, During the fast and until hunger returns, food of any kind is an intruder, and all of the energy the body is being directed through the organs of elimination towards the cleansing of the system from its self-manufactured poison, end quote. What we know today is that when a body is preparing to shut down and they only have a few days or a week left to live, according to Asis Hospice, people lose their sense of hunger and thirst. So, if you're waiting for those triggers to kick in, they're not coming. Quote, After the fast has begun, annoying symptoms may develop. Dizziness on rising suddenly, spots before the eyes, and general malaise and weakness. But the signs are not found in every instance and cannot be established as guides, end quote. Right, those pesky little red flags the body sends up to let you know it's in distress. These are symptoms of dehydration. Once that sets in, it moves surprisingly fast. The organs can only steal so much fluid from other sources. The symptoms she's describing as annoying are just the beginning. The beginning of the end, actually. The body will start shutting down the organs in as soon as three days following. She writes, quote, The duration of the complete fast is a matter that can neither be foretold nor prescribed by any individual case, for the treatment has its beginning in disease and its end in the hunger that marks it the return of the digestive power. Until the latter makes itself apparent, and it cannot be mistaken, the fast must continue. Then, and not until then, is the system in condition again to receive and transform food into tissue structure. The sensation of hunger is a safeguard established by nature to ensure bodily maintenance. End quote. <sighs> With great power comes great responsibility. 
These people were trusting her with their life. Quote, the drinking of water is not needful during a fast unless thirst is indicated. When the latter sensation makes demand, only sufficient water to satisfy it should be taken. When properly conducted, water is supplied to the body through absorption from the vehicle of the enema. End quote. Uh, I'm sorry, what did you say? <sighs> the enema was her go to technique to uh, literally <laughs> move things along. But she would also say that there was more than one way to purge a stomach. Caution, this gets a little graphic. Quote, The experience of the fast is trying to those who, by high living and overfeeding, have given the liver work beyond its capacity. In extreme form, this symptom indicates a liver in some stage of disintegration and recovery is doubtful. However, Vomiting of bile occurring for 26 days in succession has shown later restoration of health. Vomiting is not alarming when the fluid raised is yellow or yellow-greenish in hue and when nausea occurs in at infrequent intervals. But if the color changes to a vivid green or to black, the case may be considered as most serious in character and of doubtful prognosis. When nausea is present during a fast, it is better to aid elimination in ridding the stomach of its contents through the mouth than to permit them to remain with the certainty of partial reabsorption and retoxification. If difficulty is found in raising the contents of the stomach, titillation of the palate with the end of the finger or with a feather will cause the convulsive muscular contraction necessary. The drinking of warm water will ease the act of retching and at the same time will cleanse the walls of the stomach. End quote. As we know, she is on the radar of the officials and the health department and whatnot, but no one moved to do anything. More and more, she moved her patients out to the sanitarium. My guess is so that she wasn't readily observed, and she could pretty much get away with everything. From what I could piece together, most of her clients would meet her at her offices in Seattle. She would listen to their woes and then tell them that, since she was a professional sniffer, she could definitely detect that there was a problem. But fear not, she could fix it in... <laughs> 27 to 57 days. She'd say, quote, The law of hunger determines its duration, and all other things being equal, the surroundings and mental attitude in accord, this course will assure restoration to health. End quote. If they were resistant, this is when, I'd imagine, she would offer to put them up at a hotel, or she could try to persuade them further of how important it is to be focused completely on your healing. That may be staying at a resort, free from distraction, and others who may have negative thoughts would be the best action to take. Quote, Worry, anger, and grief are also most detrimental to progress towards a cure. 
One instance comes to mind in which a case had fasted by eight days for functional disease of no special gravity. Improvement had been continuous, but differences existed between the patient and her husband, and the latter in an interview with his wife on the eighth day of her fast so angered and distressed her that a nervous congenitive chill with suffusion of blood to the brain and lungs occurred, and death resulted immediately from these causes. No amount of argument could convince the orthodox mind that the fast had not brought about death in this case, but the woman would have died just as surely had the scene described taken place before the omission of food, when the patient was ill and nervously weaker than at the time when the anger and grief were so strongly excited. End quote. Then maybe she'd add how important it is to have someone close by that can monitor minute changes in the disease, something a layperson could not possibly detect. Quote, the average patient regards the symptom as the cause and fails to appreciate what its temporary aggravation in the fast implies. End quote. You could see how she might use this logic to encourage patients to stay at her resort so she could consistently monitor them, as opposed to them attempting to fast for a cure on their own, knowing they will give in to hunger the moment it shows up, believing it a symptom that needs to be paid attention to, rather than pushing through and allowing the fast to do its thing. Quote, Symptoms severe in character result, in fast or out of it, from organs that are below normal in size or that are misplaced or defective in structure, and when distressing conditions arise in the fast, the safer and saner thing to do is to continue the commission of food to the point of purification rather than return to feeding or to resort to a partial fast. End quote. Hushed Up History would write, quote, All of her victims came to her with money, and they all died financially drained. End quote. Ugh. She makes me sick. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website that's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. We finally arrive to the case of Dorothea and Claire Williamson. During the month of February, the wealthy Williamson sisters were gallivanting about doing this and seeing that, and had decided on one last adventure before splitting up for a bit. One would go to London, England, and the other would go to Australia, where they called home. Claire and her older sister, Dora, 
were orphaned at a young age and their care was placed in the hands of their wealthy grandfather in Australia. The sisters spent a lot of time traveling and didn't give it a second thought to not inform their family of each and every trip. For this last hurrah, they decided to swing by Seattle, Washington. They were in California at the time when they came across an advertisement about Dr. Linda Hazard and her fasting treatments. You know, I really wish I could get my hands on one of her pamphlets. I would love to know what she said and promised to lure the new patients-slash-victims in. While being overall healthy, the girls, I, I say girls, but they were both actually in their 30s, Dorothea, who went by Dora, suffered from indigestion and rheumatism. Her sister Claire had displacement of the uterus. They purchased Hazard's book and devoured it, pardon the pun, but that's when they decided that they wanted to go and directly speak to the author and the doctor herself. They opted not to tell anyone about their side trip, probably fearing the warnings everyone would try to give. They believed in alternative medicine when most people did not. They arrived at the office of Dr. Linda Hazard of Seattle on February 27, 1911. After discussing their symptoms, it was decided the sisters would accept treatment from Hazard every day except Saturday and Sunday for $60 each per month. And Linda even took care of their accommodations, securing apartments at the Buena Vista, which was close by. The treatments began the very next day. The sisters would come into the office for massages, warm baths, and enemas. They were instructed to refrain from any solid food and only ingest fruit juice, asparagus water, or vegetable broth, but never at the same time. And she instructed very specific quantities as well. Quote, Daily baths and enemata, mechanical accessories for the maintenance of cleanliness and aids to elimination, mark the commencement of the treatment, and these accompaniments with the commission of the morning meal mark the first stage of approach to the period of a total abstinence from food. Omitting breakfast and lessening quantity at the other meals paves the way and the gradual diminution of food supply should occupy an interim of not more than 10 days or 2 weeks after which the other meals should in succession be dropped. Thus the system is prepared without any noticeable change save that of relief for the entire deprivation of food for the absolute cessation of the function of digestion. End quote. From their first day on the 27th until March 15th, Dora and Claire faithfully came to the office for their daily warm bath, massage, and enema, consisting of flushing through the body four to six quarts of warm water every day. Hushed Up History writes, quote, The sisters voluntarily took part in two-hour-long procedures, enemas, while standing in a bathtub fitted with canvas supports meant to catch them when they fainted. Lastly, there were the massages, brutal rituals where they were roughly manhandled and punched by Hazard with her bare fists, end quote. They followed her instructions to a T. When they might question the treatment, 
I am sure she would offer up something along these lines. Quote, what matter if, in attaining the extreme ends of purification of the body, is reduced to a minimum of flesh? Organs and framework still remain by which and upon which to build a new purified and resistive structure for future needs. End quote. These quotes are coming from her book, by the way. I really don't have any idea exactly what she said to the ladies, but it seems possible that she would use these exact same tactics found in her book. And to give them a gauge of how they were doing, she might have offered this piece of advice so they could check every day. Quote, a clean tongue is one of the unfailing signs of a complete and successful fast, and it may take months to accomplish. Months? And, spoiler alert, there would never be a clean tongue, because a sign of starvation is a white coating on the tongue, the very thing that they were creating for themselves. Another clue she might give them would be, quote, Once food is denied and cell refuse is discharged into the channels of evacuation, acetone, when it is present, appears in all the excretions, and its characteristic ether-like odor is most pronounced, end quote. Yeah, so here's the thing. Our body creates ketones. Acetone is one type of these ketones. Yes, the same ingredient found in nail polish remover. These are made in the liver, which it uses to push back out into the body to use for fuel. When we're dieting, we want the body to be able to use up more of these ketones. However, when your body reaches starvation mode, it causes acetone poisoning. It's also called ketoacidosis. This happens when you rob the liver and other organs of all the quote-unquote carbs and fats it had stored up, so the body can no longer defend itself. It is shutting down. This is detected by the sweet, acidy smell on your breath. We don't want this. But she would tell them that it's good, that it's necessary. Yes, we need to break down the ketones in order to clean out the body and to get rid of excess carbs and fats, but then we stop. But she just kept right on going. By the time you smell that sweet ether smell, you're already in big trouble. So here we are, around March 15th. The sisters are so weak, they are unable to bring themselves to the office for their treatment. Linda Hazard hired a nurse to take care of the ladies and went to visit them to provide their treatments. Five days a week. The sisters were getting weaker and weaker. But they still believed in the program. They continued to follow the regiment hardly anything to eat, daily baths, massages, and enemas. She would have regular conversations with the sisters. You know, where are you from? Who are your family? How much property do you own? How much are you worth when you're dead? You know, conversations. On one particular day, Dr. Hazard suggested the sisters keep their valuables in her safe along with any important papers they may be holding on to. So they did. The rings were slipping off their fingers anyway. By April 22nd, it was decided the sisters should come to the sanitarium for the last part of their treatment. 
they were unable to walk. The sisters had to be carried from their beds on stretchers to an ambulance waiting outside. And just before arriving to Alala, Claire was required to sign some paperwork. Just a minor detail. Nothing to concern yourself about. Just a quick signature, and then you'd be on your way. As a person continues to starve, the central nervous system is affected from the deprivation of energy. We know that the brain consumes a fifth of a person's energy, but when that energy is depleted, starving people are likely to have issues with concentrating. So, with this bit of information, I don't know if she actually knew what she was signing or not, but I can see how, in their weakened state, that they might not even be able to read, much less comprehend. Their poor little dehydrated brains. As I'm sure you can guess, Claire Williamson, at the time, signed a codicil to her will, where she bequeathed an annuity to the sanitarium, and also that the balance of her bank account was to be transferred to Linda Burfield Hazard in her bank. But wait, she went after more. Claire also signed a direction for the London Bank to send money in the care of Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard to her office in Seattle. And one final handwritten note that it was believed to have been forged by Hazard herself would read, quote, My diamonds I wish to give to Dr. Hazard. She can never be repaid for love and tenderness and care, end quote. These few pages would clean out the girls' accounts and give all to their quote-unquote caregiver. Oh, and if something went wrong and death occurred, there was another signed document by the already frail Claire that claimed she, quote, wanted her body cremated under the charge and direction of Linda Burfield Hazard, end quote. They continued their treatments while at the sanitarium and were becoming more weak, fading in and out of consciousness. They had realized that they had gone too far and began asking, no, begging for food, but Hazard told them that the poison wasn't out of them yet. They must not take in food until their system was entirely clean. According to Dora, Linda would tell them that if they ate food, it might upset their progress so much it could kill them because it was so dangerous. Just a bit more, just a little while longer. The sisters had then been separated. Linda told Dorothea that her sister's mind was becoming feeble and that she should not engage in conversations about business with her. Both girls had lost more than one half of their weight in less than three months of being under the care of Linda Hazard. And on May 19th, Claire Williamson died. Hushed Up History would say, quote, Hazard explained that the cause of Claire's death had nothing to do with her fasting. It was because of medication she was given as a child that shrunk her organs and caused cirrhosis of the liver. She knew this because she conducted all of her patients' autopsies herself inside of a bathtub, end quote. On May 22nd, the sanitarium finally sent word to the uncle that Claire had passed away. Only a few days after that, Dora was required to sign her paperwork. 
She gave power of attorney to Linda's husband, Samuel Hazard, authorizing his access to, quote, any and all monies in the savings department thereof, end quote. She also signed a banknote requesting a transfer of funds to Samuel Hazard. Then, on May 27th, Linda Hazard filed a petition in probate court stating that Dorothea Williamson was an invalid and was experiencing great suffering and was mentally incompetent to manage her own affairs and requested she be her new guardian. And so it was done, all without the knowledge of Miss Dora Williamson. Apparently, Linda Hazard finally chose the wrong people to cross. The Williamson sisters were not all alone in the world. They had family. Enter Miss Margaret Conway. She was the sister's nanny when they were little, and apparently somehow they got a cable sent to her before Claire had died. She was met at the boat and taken to the Seattle office by Sam Hazard. He had told her that Claire had already passed away and that Dora had gone mad, but was under the best of care. Margaret Conway demanded to see Dora. Dora was barely a walking skeleton. Miss Conway demanded she be given food, and she stayed there with her. While the nanny was there, she was able to see firsthand that Dr. Hazard would wear Claire's dresses and jewelry about the property. When she felt Dora was well enough to leave sometime in July, Miss Conway announced that she was going to take her away. But Linda Hazard had the power of attorney and legal guardianship for Dora. Miss Conway did not accept those end results and wired a message to their uncle, and he arrived shortly thereafter insisting that Dora be released. Linda agreed only after requiring him to pay a ridiculous fee for quote-unquote unpaid treatments. Dorothea, at the time, weighed just 60 pounds. Her uncle paid the prosecuting attorney to look into the situation. This was the window they were looking for. On August 15, 1911, Mrs. Linda Hazard was arrested. The Tacoma Daily News would read, quote, Officials expect to expose starvation atrocities. Dr. Hazard depicted as fiend, end quote. She was charged with first-degree murder in the starvation death of Claire Williamson. During the trial, the prosecutor came at the defendant stating that not only was she starving her patients by withholding food, she was serving up, quote-unquote, financial starvation. They were able to produce documents, forged signatures, papers signed only days before a patient passed away. Linda vehemently defended her practice, claiming that, quote, none of her patients died because of fasting. Their deaths were due to unrelated medical conditions, end quote. Miss Dora Williamson was able to testify at the trial. She would describe a typical day, quote, 6 a.m. and remain in bed, 8 a.m., one cup of orange juice, 9 a.m., given a bowl of water in which to wash and left to wash alone, although physically helpless from starving. I was often so weak I either could not or forgot to wash at all. 11 a.m. Taken to bathroom. A bare, rough-boarded shack with 
couch and oil stove and given hot water enemas until too weak. Lie down on the couch. 1 p.m. One cup of broth. Sometimes this was very weak broth from potatoes or some other vegetables. Sometimes we were given asparagus water or six asparagus tips. 6 p.m. One cup of broth. End quote. Quote from the newspaper. Hazard calls the Williamson case, quote, the culmination of the constant and unwearied persecution. She says zeal and fame led Agassiz to bring the murder charge against her and closes with a general statement in which she asserts the medical profession has left no stone unturned to ruin her. Agassiz did not care to go to the trouble of commenting on her statements. Quote, I have fully digested her latest defense on the fast cure, he remarked with a flash of humor, and in any event, the merits or demerits of the fast cure are not involved in our charge of murder, end quote, and Mike drop. The jury returned with a verdict of manslaughter. She was sentenced to two to twenty years of hard labor in prison on February 4, 1912. Despite the evidence being, quote, abundantly sufficient to sustain the conviction and that, quote, the defendant had a fair trial, the trial court in imposing the sentence, quote, tempered justice with mercy, end quote. She would serve only two years in the state penitentiary and would be released on parole on December 26, 1915, with the promise that she must never return. And eventually she was given a full pardon from the governor. So she and Sam moved to New Zealand, where she practiced her trade once again. And then she came back. By 1920, she had apparently made a small fortune while she was away and built the sanitarium of her dreams on her 40 acres of property in Olala. She had her medical license revoked back in February of 1912, and she called her new sanitarium a school of health. Somewhere along the way, she was reunited with her son, Roland Perry Burfield, from her first marriage, who came into the family business. He and his wife Jenny fell easily into the life of the sanitarium and were known for a few shenanigans of their own. A man named William Jusselow was brought forward after he had filed an insurance claim under the health accident policy. He said that he suffered from a stomach ailment and decided to seek out Mrs. Hazard for help when he read about her fasting program. He said he was given strained vegetable soup for breakfast, a gallon of honey-sweetened lemonade for lunch, a baked potato and vegetable salad for dinner. Sometimes he got berries. He would also say he received daily massage treatments. Linda Hazard and her daughter-in-law were arrested for practicing medicine without a license and the bail was set at $2,000. Linda rebelled and stated that the arrests and investigations were ridiculous. She said she was merely teaching dieting to pupils because she does not practice medicine. I'm sorry, but I don't know the results of this case because the newspapers did not find it worthy to print anything about it. I can tell you that in 1935, 
her beautiful sanitarium building that she had specially built mysteriously burned to the ground. A few years after that, Linda became ill. She followed her own regime and ended up starving herself to death. Side note, in case you're wondering, the longest fast of not eating solid food is still believed to be Angus Barberi. He was 27 years old and was 456 pounds in 1965 before he submitted to a short fast under the observation of a doctor's care. The doctors had initially only wanted him to do a fast for a shorter amount of time, but Angus insisted going longer. 382 days. For one year and 27 days, Angus lived on coffee, tea, and sparkling water, vitamins and various servings of yeast to supply his amino acids. He stopped fasting when he reached 180 pounds. He lost, on average, 22 pounds per month. Do not try this at home. And that, I suppose, wraps it up for this week's episode. (laughs) Suddenly, I am craving a big old juicy cheeseburger. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could, please leave a review to let others know what we've got going on over here. I'd be most grateful. If you want to support the show, consider joining us over at Patreon.com. There are several levels to choose from, and I will show my gratitude with gifts, international bones episodes, and discounted merch, and even more. Your support will allow me to continue to bring you new episodes, as we continue to uncover America's history's secrets from my bag of bones. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created, researched, written, and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, edited by Katie Bougeret-Caldwell, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. To become a patron, please look up Bag of Bones podcast at patreon.com for exclusive content and merch. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.